Today, we're going to start with something that happened at the end of the show. I was interviewing Melissa Guller, and after the interview, she said this. I also hope I tried, obviously, not to talk too much about my own courses and tried to talk about school podcasting as well. And let me explain why that was cool. Melissa has a very deep background. She's a marketing manager. She's got deep knowledge of project management. She's an online course creator. And that's why I brought her on today to talk course creation back on episode 787. We investigated that report from entrepreneurs and the number one way people are monetizing is with course online courses. So I was like, all right, let's find an online course uh, guru. And that's what Melissa is. But also she can help you start a podcast and plan a podcast and how to edit and how to get booked and things like that. She is the head of Wit and Wire. After working at Teachable, she started her own company and she's still involved. You can hear on Everything is Teachable. That's the Teachable podcast. She's also involved in a podcast called Booksmart, which is about uh, personal development books. But you can check her out at Wit and Wire podcast where she interviews other successful podcasters. But I thought it was so cool that she said, look, I did my best not to promote my stuff. And that is so not the typical, can we put up air quotes, marketer? And you know why? It's because Melissa is actually pretty cool. In fact, she's really cool. I've had a, a additional conversations with her since we did this interview, and I'm really glad to know her. She is a wealth of knowledge. So the last thing I need to mention here is in my last episode, I, I kind of said, look, I give you permission to do podcasting for fun. You don't have to make money with your podcast. This particular episode is all about monetization. It's about selling an online course. And you might say, well, I don't want to do an online course. I might do an ebook or things like that. And we'll get into books a little later here too. But there's a great tips in here on how to set your pricing, how to figure out, am I, is it time to really monetize things here and that? So there's, even if you plan on never launching a course, there's still some tidbits in here that I believe you're going to go, oh, that's something I didn't think about, especially when we talk about how many people are actually going to sign up for your course. Now, if you are the person that doesn't want to monetize your show at all, here's your hall pass. You're allowed to skip this episode because this is all about making money with your podcast, with online courses, as well as things like pricing and understanding your audience. So I I give you a pass on this. I will see you next week. Don't forget to go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash subscribe and follow because today we're going to have a blast with Melissa Guller from Wit and Wire. Hit it, ladies. The School of Podcasting with Dave Jackson. Podcasting Sense 2005. I'm your award-winning Hall of Fame podcast coach, Dave Jackson, thanking you so much for tuning in. If you're new to the show, this is where I help you plan, launch, and grow your podcast. And I also help you monetize it. I am the author of the book, Profit from Your Podcast. Links to everything today at schoolofpodcasting.com slash 791. And if you want to start your podcast, I am ready to help you. Go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash start and use the coupon code LISTENER, that's L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R, and sign up for either a monthly or yearly subscription. And before we get to Melissa, I want to bring in the new sponsor. You see, I sent out a thing, a survey. I said, how many of you are thinking about writing a book? And the answer was a lot. A lot of you are thinking about writing a book. And so... 
a lot of you also don't know where to start, and that's where the sponsor comes in. Our sponsor, the Novel Marketing Podcast, it's here to help. And what I love is they have this one post. It's called the 10, basically the 10 commandments of book marketing. And the first commandment is know thy reader. And as I go through the content over there, if you are already a podcaster, you really are this close to being an author. Because when you define your reader, does this sound familiar? Um, You need to know why do they read books? What do they like about the books they read? Uh, Who writes the books that they like to read? Where do they hang out online? Maybe what are their pain points that your book, whether it's, you know, nonfiction especially, could help? It all starts with knowing your audience. Check out, they also have courses over there. Check out the book launch blueprint. I called up Thomas, who I met at the Spark Christian Podcast Conference a couple years ago, when I got my first report from my book, Profit From Your Podcast, and basically in a very loving, polite way, (laughs) Thomas showed me that had I actually taken his course, I would be making a whole lot more money from my book than I am now. But that's it. So check it out again, the Novel Marketing Podcast. If you're thinking of launching a book, you really can't go wrong by working with Thomas. If you sit around this guy long enough, he will just start spewing insane amounts of knowledge that you just want to go, how how do you know all that stuff? For more information, go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash author. That's schoolofpodcasting.com slash author. Let's talk online courses with Melissa from witandwire.com. Well, Melissa, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. How does somebody know if a course is a good fit for their podcast? I think the better question is what time could be the right fit for you to consider a course? Because anybody who's already sharing their knowledge in a podcast, I would say odds are good if you're using that podcast to build up authority, build up your brand, build up who you are and what you want to share. You're already building up credibility around some kind of knowledge And I don't think you need nearly as much experience as a podcaster or frankly, any internet content creator to create a course. I think that's a big misconception. You do not have to be the number one expert in your whole industry in order to create the course. But where I do think maybe people start too soon is that they go right into a full course. They start creating videos, they start uploading. And what I would say instead is it's better to find a way to get paid to develop that course instead. So I think one of the biggest steps that people skip is the validation that your idea is something that people would pay for. And there are a couple ways that you can validate the idea. The first is to do one-on-one coaching or services. Can you just get one person to pay you money? I think that's a great place to start because then you'll get paid not only to develop obvious relationships with early clients, but also to figure out how you do the thing you claim to want to teach. Like if you want to teach somebody how to build up their resume, but you've never actually done that before, having one person pay you is a great way to figure out what your system is. And then as you help a couple of individuals, then you'll start to see, you know what? I do the same thing in the same order for everyone. And that's a good indicator that you could have a course idea on your hands. But even if you do just want to jump right into more of a true course format, I think one of two things works really well. One is a paid workshop. See if you can get people to sign up for one, one to two hour event. Because that way, if nobody buys, 
then you haven't wasted all of your time creating this three-month-long full-on program. And instead, you can get, like I said, validated. You can get paid to do that first workshop. And then if it works, you can develop it from there. Or the second thing you can do is run what people call a beta program, or they do something they call them founding members. You often only need five-ish people, maybe five to 10 people, to get a solid group of people who all want to achieve the same outcome. And then you can do something as low-tech as meeting over Zoom every Monday for eight weeks. You can develop the content as you go. And what's nice about that approach is, first of all, founding members get the best possible price. They get more access to you. So they're getting a really personalized experience. And you're getting the invaluable insight of what they really need to solve. Because that's what your course does at the end of the day. It's the shortcut to an outcome. And so if they're paying you and they're telling you exactly what they need along the way, your end curriculum, which you can then sell as a course, will be much better off. Is there such a thing as a too long course or too short? Is there any kind of best practices for that? A great question. One we got all the time when I was working full-time for Teachable. I usually talk about the size of the transformation that somebody will achieve rather than the length of the course. Because at the end of this entire course experience, people don't really want to sit around for hours and hours and hours and watch videos. And I think what a lot of new course creators get wrong is you see the sales page and they're so excited to tell you that it's like 72 hours of videos. And that's the absolute last thing I want. So I actually think as course creators, one of the things that the great course creators do is they're always asking, how can I make this curriculum shorter? What could I edit out? What is not need to know in order to get somebody from point A to point B? But then to answer your question more directly, let's say that our example from earlier, somebody is just creating a stronger resume to maybe change industries. Well, the outcome of that, I would say, is pretty significant in terms of, you know, resumes affect your earning potential, it matters. But if you're also going to do something that's a little more extensive around maybe job hunting, interviewing, then you could start to get into more of a signature program. But overall, one person could still go from the beginning to the end of that course, and there would be a transformation that makes sense. I think where it starts to feel overwhelming is where you try to do everything within one course. So of course, here we are talking to podcasters. I think it would feel pretty overwhelming to enroll in a course where the goal was to go from podcast idea to 100,000 downloads. Like, of course, that's the dream, right? We all want to have wildly successful podcasts, but the major milestone we've missed along the way is maybe launching the podcast, maybe your first 20 episodes of the podcast. And critically, I think the strategies, I'm sure you would agree, the first 20 episodes, getting your podcast out there, the questions you're asking are so different from the questions that somebody at 50,000 downloads is asking. And so to me, those are two very different students. So I would say, think about a transformation that matters, but especially if it's your first course, don't go for the entire thing. Pick something that's meaningful, but doable. What are some of the, uh, I'll just call them eye-rolling mistakes. And by that, I just mean that the newbies, for lack of a better phrase, those mistakes that they make that you see over and over that you go, oh, yeah, well, God bless them, they're new. Let's, let's get them going in the right direction. So what are those kind of mistakes that you see? Let me first say that teaching is a skill. I think it's really hard to learn how to teach what you know well, especially because, to answer your question directly, we have forgotten what it's like to be a beginner. And I think too often we skip over the earliest questions people are asking because we unknowingly assume that they're common knowledge. 
Like, for example, you and I get asked about microphones all the time. We could talk about podcast microphones, naming a podcast, all of these early questions in our sleep. We can answer them day in and day out, but you still have to break those down as though no one's ever asked you before. And you have to really put yourself in the headspace of a beginner. And I think another thing that course creators maybe undervalue is the fact that being a beginner is really hard. And so by that, I mean, when you're starting off a new course, your enthusiasm is at like a level 10, but your skills are at maybe a one or a two. And so if you get right into maybe the thing that you think is most exciting, that you think most people want to learn, if they aren't ready for it yet, if they haven't done the warm up before they run the race, they're going to feel ill-prepared and they're more likely to give up. So I think something I wish that more course creators did is think about those small wins right at the beginning and even help people think much bigger picture. So why are they starting their new project? What are the goals of the project? Again, these things might sound really basic, but I don't see them addressed enough. And even just taking a little time at the beginning to set up those foundational questions will help people navigate through the full course. I love teaching because that's my background, but I know there are probably a ton of people out there that have the knowledge. They might even have the audience. What's stopping them from from starting? I know for me, video. So is that one of the biggest things that, that people trip over is the video part? Yeah. Throughout all four years I was at Teachable, by far the number one challenge that we heard from new course creators was, I don't know how to create video. I'm afraid of putting myself out there and being on video. And especially right now, the technology to create using even a webcam or your iPhone has never been better. But I think bigger picture, there's almost this like procrastinating working fear of, oh, if I make the video, then I have to put the video out there. And then I have to enroll people. And then I have to have this fear of people telling me my curriculum isn't good. But people really don't need a fancy camera. They don't need a fancy mic even, although obviously I love great audio quality. (laughs) What they need is your knowledge. And I like to compare this to a classroom. We've all attended in-person classes and the person at the front of the room didn't look a certain way. They didn't have fancy gear around them. They may have even had a chalkboard or a whiteboard in the background. And you walked away from that class feeling like you gained something. And that's what's the most important thing to remember about your online course is that people are buying this course because they appreciate the knowledge that you have. They probably want the outcome that you've achieved. And I think if you can keep it really simple, you can download things like free Google Slides templates. You can screen demo on your computer. I do believe in showing your face in some of the curriculum, especially something like a welcome video or something at the top. But you don't have to be on camera for the whole thing. I think that's a misconception. Another misconception is that video is the only element to your course when there are so many other pieces we can talk about. But if video is the one thing holding you back, I would say really all you need is a webcam or some Google slides and a very simple recording tool on your computer. And I'll even double down and say, I don't think you need to edit. I think if you go into your recording of a specific lesson and you think to yourself, all right, we're going to do 10 minutes on a specific topic on choosing a podcast format, let's say. You can go into it and teach the way that you would in a classroom. And that'll help you feel like, oh gosh, I don't have to do all this editing. And I think as podcast hosts, it's maybe a little trickier for us because we are used to doing editing. But that's how you can cut down on the time it'll take you to produce the content as well, which I think is huge. And one more thing I'll say about video is that people do not want to watch 
hour long videos. Mm. People want to retain knowledge. And I think they, similar to a theme we talked about earlier, they want to feel like this course is attainable. And I think a lot of people have seven minutes. A lot of people have 15 minutes to learn about a specific lesson. And so for the student, I think it's a lot easier to digest a lot of short lessons. But I also think it's nicer if you imagine the way that your course outline looks. Let's say you have one specific section of the course. A lot of people would record that as just an hour long video. But instead, if you break that into an outline where there's one specific outcome per lesson, it's so much easier for your student to go back later and reference that one specific thing they were looking for, which helps them actually get to your outcome over time. And then as an instructor, I think maybe an unspoken or less spoken about benefit of mapping out your course into these smaller videos is let's say one thing changes. If you have an hour long video and now you have to go in and change minute 37 to 39, that's going to feel really frustrating. But if you've recorded a series of four to six videos, now you can just replace one of those videos with a newer five minute video later on and keep the rest. So for maintenance, for student experience, for sheer ease of recording and production, I think across the board, shorter videos are the way to go. Let's say I've done a podcast and it's got a great episode and I've got this content and it fits in with my course. Is it okay to take something that's free and put it in a course that's not free? Definitely. I think there's actually two great questions here. One is almost what is the difference between what should be in your free content versus your paid content? Mm. A question we got a lot. And the other is about just generally what kinds of content can you include in a course? So let's start with that one because we've already hinted at it. Video, of course, is the backbone of what we all think of when we think of an online course. But things like PDFs, I think are valuable, but that's just a format. Things like community, I think, can be helpful for the right program if people need support or even if people would benefit from connecting to each other. If you imagine all your students, chances are good that they have a lot in common, that they could benefit from knowing each other. So some element of community or even a directory of students could be really valuable. Mm -hmm. Also, things like live weekly group coaching. I know there are coaching elements in school podcasting. Just having the chance for people to get that one-on-one time, I think, is really helpful. But then I think the understated elements of courses that I would love to see more people are including are things like templates, script starters, checklists. Yes, technically these are all PDFs or things that I in 2021 like to deliver as Google Docs, something I actually use in my day-to-day life, but things that again, help people shortcut to that outcome. So it's not about just thinking PDF equals course workbook. It's thinking about things like maybe Trello or Asana boards or Google Sheets or working docs or starter scripts. Even I've seen some people include things like coding snippets, examples, things that people can literally copy and paste. Do you have an Elementor landing page that you can share within your course? What are all the things that you are going to have to teach? And then ask yourself, could I actually create a starting version or a demo of any of these that would help somebody just start off on the right foot? instead of using a blank page. And one more, I would say, uh, pro tip that I use in my programs is that I create suggested timelines of how long it would take somebody to create the course. I don't assume they'll all take the same pace. So in my program about launching a podcast, I help people decide, do you want to launch in 30, 60, or 90 days? These are very different paces. And You can't maybe quite do as much in 30 days as you could in 90 days in terms of banking up more episodes before you go live, things like that. So I like to show people the difference because I have a background in project management, course creation. 
no matter the project, if you're new at something, we all underestimate how long it would take. <laughs> and I think by just showing people, I make like simple PDFs, just kind of showing week one, you would do this week two, you would do that. You don't have to get into the super specific details of this lesson on this day, this lesson on that day. I think that's a recipe for chaos, but just big picture. What does it look like to go through your program? And then I, the productivity nerd go one step further. I do have templates in Trello and Asana and Airtable and Notion and Google Sheets and even printouts because I'm trying to suit all my student styles. I would say that's right. that's overachieving. That's like my zone of genius. I love to organize stuff. But just something that could help your students take the course because if left to their own devices, unfortunately, most students don't finish a lot of the programs they enroll in, even with the best intentions. So I think it's up to you as the course creator to figure out not just what knowledge they need, but also how to help them get it on their calendar in order to move through the program. The other thing, I, this is my own uh, selfish question, because this is for me, I'm, I'm pondering this in the future. Like right now, the School of Podcasting is open. If you want to start right now, you can. Some people do the whole, okay, we're, we're open in January, and then we're going to close for six weeks while we teach the people that signed up. And then that, you know, that whole open close, you have the big launch, and then the whole nine yards. Pros and cons, It's a tricky question. And I have seen both strategies work really well. When I was working for Ramit Sethi, we did a lot of what's called the open close launch strategy. In other words, the course is only available for a set amount of time. And then it well and truly closes. You cannot enroll the following week. And I think for people doing the open close strategy, the benefits are that it's real urgency and real scarcity. And deadlines absolutely do drive decision-making. And so people often need a reason to buy and closing a program definitely gives people that reason to buy. Now, what I think a bigger upside of the open close philosophy is, is that if you open your program a few times a year, you can create internal cohorts or groups of students who are going through it together. And I think depending on how you've built it, if you have a community element, there's a real camaraderie to that. They get to know each other. People are joining at the same time. You can do an onboarding or a kickoff call. And a lot of students in my programs and some of the other like clients and people I've worked with, they have found that that kind of cohort effect of people going through a course at the same time builds accountability within the group. And it leads to higher outcomes by the end of the program because they don't feel like they're alone. It mimics more of a classroom setting. Now on the cons, the open close launch strategy is in a word, exhausting. I think it takes a lot of energy to do it. And even if you think to yourself, oh, we're going to do this a few times a year, we're going to rinse and repeat, we're going to use 80% of what we've done in the past. I am here to tell you, it's more work than you think it is. Mm. And I'm only saying that because I've done it. I've been in those shoes. I'm the person who's done this for years for myself and for other people. And still when the end of the live launch rolls around, I'm just like, why do we do this to ourselves? But I do think that the pros, obviously earning more money, getting the students in the door, having real deadlines and real urgency. Those are all very real pros. And I do think it's a good choice, especially earlier. We talked about a beta program. I would definitely close the doors on a beta program. I would maybe even do another round after that, where you close the doors, maybe the first time that you enroll people into the full actual self-paced curriculum, because that's not just about urgency. It's also to me about improving your curriculum and improving your overall experience. So I think that early course creators benefit in particular from the live launch strategy. Then the evergreen model is where you have your course open all the time. And for transparency right now, Wit & Wire, I'm on the evergreen model because I was just kind of exhausted with (laughs) launching. And I think that some pros of the evergreen model are number one, 
people are not necessarily ready to buy when they first learn about you. And so if you only open the doors a couple times a year and somebody happens to find you the next week, maybe they've potentially missed the boat, even though they're so hot, they're so ready to buy. That's one extreme. Then on the other end, maybe somebody finds you and they're really just learning. They're in the early phases. They haven't decided they want your outcome yet. So it's not the right timing for them. So I think that's a con. But then when it comes to marketing strategies, I use a lot of, of course, organic and paid traffic for my business. And so I decided I really wanted to run Facebook ads and be able to A-B test those strategies. And so I run ads to a free masterclass. And then that masterclass promotes the program, which is always open. There is an offer that people can get if they're a first-time attendee of the masterclass. So I do build in some kind of gratitude for people who are action takers who want to join and give them a bonus course, but they know the program's available. Like I don't believe in pretending your program closes if it doesn't, that doesn't feel good to me. So things like running paid strategies and optimizing them over time, that's a pro I think for evergreen. I also think for any podcasters who are going on to other shows, being a guest, if you want to talk about your business and build up authority, but your program only opens a few times per year, that could limit the potential for new people who find out about you to join your membership, to join your program, your curriculum. So I think that having that open close strategy, although you get like a huge intake of money a few times a year, the question you'll have to ask yourself is, do you believe that those few times added up will be more than the money that you could earn by keeping your program all year long? And it will be very different for different people. I think evergreen models work really well for topics that people are always interested in. So things like podcasting, right? People are always developing different skills, hobbies, crafts, really anything in the professional arena. I think I would argue that most topics people are looking for year round. The alternative is maybe some topics are a little more suited for like a back to school season or a new year's season. And I think you would know if that was true about your industry, fitness comes to mind for January, where I feel like if I were in the fitness industry, I would probably do something around January. But I think for most people working toward an evergreen model tends to suit at least my stress level a little bit better. Since you have a teachable background, is there a feature in teachable that like you go, oh, this is like the coolest feature and nobody's using it? Ooh, now that's a good question. Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I will say you can embed podcast episodes inside of lessons. And I do think that is an underutilized feature. And just generally embedding is the thing that I do that I think not enough creators are doing. So I'll give an example. I do an onboarding form in all of my signature programs, my programs that are like more than 50 bucks, because I really want to get to know students. And so I embed... I happen to use, I mean, I've used all the different from type form to paper form. I've used all the forms, Google forms, and I like to embed them within the lesson itself hmm. instead of clicking out to it. Because if people can see it in front of them and just get started, I think it just makes it overall a much nicer experience. So I think people underestimate how much you can do within a lecture that is not just adding a video. The last thing we haven't talked about, of course, is price. I know for me, anytime I price my stuff, it's always too low. I need to bring it up. Any tips on setting a price for your course? Tons of tips. As I'm sure you could guess, this is another one of the hot topics for course creators. And let me say that I think pricing is hard because you can't know the right answer. Mm. You also can't necessarily look around 
at your direct competitors and know what the price should be for you. I think it's healthy when you're first pricing something to see what else is out there because you don't want to be way under or way over. But my general advice, and then I'll give specific numbers as well, is to start lower than you think because it's a lot easier to raise your price Hmm. over time. Like starting with that beta group, pick the lowest price you feel comfortable doing because that's your first group. You're going to get input. Then when you release it the next time, it goes up a little bit. And then in the future, when you do raise the price, you can create sincere, authentic deadlines based on raising the price. And that way, people who paid it earlier feel like they got in at a good time. They have that loyalty of being a founding or an early student. But then people later on, yeah, they're going to pay you a little bit more because your expertise has gone up and you have testimonials. You've got the proof. So start lower. But now, obviously, you want to know, okay, Melissa... What should I actually price this thing? <laughs> well, no, so, that's, that's a great point because it's much easier to go up. I, I mean, when mm-hmm. I first launched, it was ridiculously low. And I actually found that the more I raised my price, and, and this sounds weird, I'm going to put up air quotes here, the better student I got because if it was too low, people would sign up and then not do a thing. They would just like, here's, you know, 15 bucks a month. And I was like, okay, but like, how anything I can help with the podcast and just, they would just ghost me. And I'm like, okay, you're paying me $15 a month for nothing. Apparently the phrase we'd often use is like skin in the game. Like if people only put $5 in, they're only going to put a $5 level of effort into that purchase. And yeah, it may seem like, Oh, but it's so affordable. Many more people could buy it. You are going to deal with way more customer service issues, unhappy people, people who don't try the more they invest in the course, it's really a decision to invest in themselves and in their decision to reach the outcome. There's also the perceived value before we go into dollars. Because if I told you I was going to teach you how to rewrite a tech resume that could land you a job in engineering, and I said, this course is $5, you would say, I don't think so. This person clearly does not have the expertise. But if I told you it was $495, now you're starting to think, why is she charging so much? And then you realize that if the promise of me helping you change careers is that you're going to earn 10K more a year, well, now paying me $500 seems like absolutely nothing. So I think that you do have to consider the optics of the price point related to, again, how big that transformation is within your course. If your course to start with the workshop level is like an hour or two, like if somebody could take it within an hour or two, generally speaking, I would price that under $100. And the reason why I'm not saying, oh, it should only be 20 or oh, it should only be 50 is because the difference between a perhaps watercolor painting intro could be very different from the resume example that we've been building because the outcomes are different. And also just honestly, your preference. If you feel like 45 massively undervalues what you're doing, charge more and vice versa. If you feel like 95 is so uncomfortable. You couldn't possibly fathom doing it. Charge less. I wouldn't go under probably 45 for really any amount of workshop or course. Like I would encourage you to not go below that point because one hour of your time is well worth that, no matter how it's being delivered. So I would say that's the minimum. Then if you think about an outcome that might take closer to a month. So this is kind of getting up into like a middle transformation. It's probably something that's useful to somebody's life. Now you're looking at a range, I would say that could go up to about 250. And then if you're thinking a month to three months, probably for the outcome, 
this is going to sound wild, but I'm going to have to say 500 to a thousand again, because of that size of the ultimate transformation of the program. So it's a lot harder to price based on just how many videos I wouldn't have any of you price based on that. I think it's still tricky to price based on how long it takes to get to the outcome because it's a very different life transformation. But then the one other factor that you can use when it comes to pricing is how much access they get to you and how much access there could be to other students. So if it's a fully self-paced curriculum where there is no personal touch, there is no community, and the only support that they could get is say email, that price point is going to be much lower than a program that has weekly live group coaching, than a program that might have a community element. So the more of those elements that you add in, the higher the price can go. But once again, my overall advice is to price it at the lowest end that you feel comfortable doing because you can always increase it over time and it is much harder to go in the opposite direction. So even though that wasn't a specific one-size-fits-all number, do you think that that (laughs) is useful? Absolutely. Any tips on should you like make a couple lessons free of a paid course as kind of a teaser? Is that a good strategy? I think it's a great strategy. Whether you have a couple of free lessons or even just one way to showcase yourself on video or the way that you teach, what that does is it helps people understand if your teaching style is for them. Mm. I think as podcast hosts, a lot of people are already getting a sense of our personality and how we are, which is why I think podcasting is such a nice segue into teaching a course because you really are building a relationship with listeners who come to know you and know not just the fact that you're an expert on a topic, but the way you talk about that topic. So I think that having a few lessons for free, nice little opt-in as well. You can grab somebody's email address in exchange for a free preview of a course. I think that's a great way to build up your email list and email lists are often a big moneymaker. It's where I make a lot of sales for my business, as I'm sure a lot of people on your show have said as well. And then I think there's this big question about what do you keep in the course versus what do you talk about publicly? Like, are there things that you shouldn't talk about on your podcast? If you know that they're going to be part of your paid curriculum and there are different schools of thought on this. Some people say publicly and for free, you can tell people what to do, but not how to do it. I think that that works for some topics in some cases, but I think it builds trust to tell people how to do things at least a little bit. Other people say there's this 98% rule. Give away 98% of everything for free. 2% ends up gated. You end up making money in the end. That could work too. What I will say is that people buy a course because it saves them time. And so even if you've shared every single topic in that course in different ways across your podcast, your social media, out in the world, the fact is that it's not in order. So for somebody to go out and try to put everything that you've said into an order that would actually lead them to that transformation would be a huge challenge. And that's why we don't all Google things. That's why we buy courses in general. We want A to Z shortcut fastest possible time. Well, for me, I always laugh because people go, well, you know, why would somebody pay for something they can get for free? I go, well, you can watch the wizard of Oz for free on TBS. It's about five hours long when they show it on TV. Cause they cram it full of commercials. Cause they know people go, Oh my gosh, the wizard of Oz, I'll watch this. Or you can buy it for 10 bucks on Amazon as a DVD or whatever you want. And it's everything's in one place. There's no ads. It's quicker. It's you can watch it whenever you want. You don't have to wait and that whole nine yards. So yeah, I always think about that as well. The other thing that people are probably thinking is, you know what, this sounds great. I, I realize now I have this knowledge in my head. Man, if I could get, I don't know, fifty percent of my audience to sign up, 
And if I charge them $45 just to start out with, well, I, you know, I, I'm going to quit my job. What are some realistic numbers when it comes to how many people are probably going to sign up from your, your podcast? I think the good news is that you can start having a course or a beta program like we talked about before a lot sooner than people realize. Even if you're getting just a handful of very dedicated listeners, even up through a hundred, a couple hundred, that's enough to get five to 20 beta people. And I think the reason I'm saying this first is because you don't need to start with a hundred students. I think we all have these big dreams about our audiences converting, but starting with an intentionally small group of five to 10 will really teach you a lot about how to help the next 50 to 200 students. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to talk about is realistic conversion rates for the average course creator. So I've worked for Teachable, Remit, and now with Witten Wire's business. And consistently across those businesses over the last seven-ish years, there is roughly a 2% conversion rate from audience to buyer. And that might sound small, and that's because it is. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want people to go out and think that 50% of your audience is going to convert. And I don't think that's a bad thing because some people will be crazy loyal fans of your podcast and they may buy some things from you at different price points. And I think for a lot of business owners, course creators included, having things at different price points with different access to you matters. Like, you could have something that's a downloadable for $10, a course for 500 and a service for 3000. And now you're meeting different people at different budgets with different access to you. But overall, the fact that people are not buying from you is not a bad thing. Like I don't want people to walk away from this conversion number hearing, Oh God, 98% of people will never buy from me. <laughs> I don't think that's it at all. I think instead it's just thinking about the fact that 2% of people out there need exactly what you're offering and at first, that might be only 10 people. That's still 10 people whose lives are going to change. And then as your audience begins to grow, as more people tune into your podcast, as more students find success and then tell other people to join your program, then the 2% number will grow and it'll keep growing. And so I think it's helpful to go into it, like you said, with that realistic benchmark that for me, what I'm looking at is how many people sign up for my free masterclass to how many people ultimately buy. For me it's 5%. It's a little bit higher. And I think that's because I have a little bit more experience in just knowing exactly who my course is for and being really clear about it. So the more clarity you have as well about not just your topic, but who you're for, who your ideal student is, which hopefully matches the ideal listener of your podcast, the higher your conversion rate could be. But I really don't want people to see this as so, so tiny, even though I think 2%. I mean, what's your reaction to hearing that number? I usually say three. When, oh, big spender. When, yeah. When I, when I did all my research and anytime I do any kind of thing and, and I actually did one, I do a, a show on Saturday and I had 8% of my audience. So I say 8%. I'm like, holy cow, that's amazing. And then I went to my other show that has, I don't know, four times the size of that audience. And it was something really like 0.0 to like zero one, it was very like not even one percent. And I remember I listened to Radio Lab, uh, which is this super popular show that's highly produced, and they have gazillions of listeners. And they did a pledge drive, and they're like, "We're trying to get up to one percent." And maybe I can offer one more sure. visual if we can have a visual on a podcast about this conversion rate. Because if you imagine one hundred people 
let's say we are using the masterclass example, 100 people sign up. Well, already, not all of them are going to attend. The average attendance rate for a masterclass could be 20 to 30%. So you can see how quickly you've gone from 100 to 30 people who are even going to attend to hear about your offer. And so when you picture all of the touch points that somebody has with you, whether it's following your podcast, signing up for something that's free on your site, whether it's a masterclass or a downloadable, those are the top of the funnel. There's so many people who come into that top part of the net who may not ever have purchase intent or they have a lot going on. But what you want to do is just be around when that person has the problem that they need solved and be there at exactly the right moment. Maybe that helps us see like if it's a hundred people, only 30 people come to this offer. Maybe it's right for half of them, but maybe for half of those people, it's not right right now. And so it goes into 50% again. So it's not about you and your ability to be a salesperson. It's just about getting the right people at the top of the net so that you can sell to them and solve their problem when it's the right time for them as well. Absolutely. The other thing I should ask, and it's kind of funny because I just had somebody on the last episode, uh, you're using Circle for your community. Uh, Did you look at any other platforms or why did you go with Circle? So admittedly, I'm friends with Sid and Andy, the founders, because we all worked together at Teachable. But they know as well as anybody that I'm pretty discerning when it comes to online tools. And so I did try a few other platforms. I considered having a free Facebook group. I then remembered that I hated Facebook. (laughs) Um, So I nixed that idea right quick. And then I tried a few others, MemberPress. But I ended up choosing Circle because I did come from a world of... Slack. And so the concept of what they call spaces or channels along the left was really appealing. But where I think Circle is different from other platforms is that it was founded by course creators, people who have been in this industry for a while. And so I think just the flexibility of the platform is really interesting. You can almost create a whole course within Circle if you know what you're doing, because you can use posts strategically. You can use some spaces as event backlogs of different live streams or recorded Zoom events that you could post. That's what I do for my archives of group coaching. You can have other spaces dedicated to discussion, other spaces where I've just embedded an Airtable directory in one of mine. So you can see all of the students in a particular course. So I think the flexibility of Circle is really interesting. And then the fact that there's an app has made it more accessible to a lot of my students. And so I know for a lot of them, the community is their favorite part of the program. And because I mentioned the fact that it's on mobile, something that podcast hosts can think about is the fact that a lot of people want to learn on the go. And so if you are creating a course, maybe in phase two, when it becomes self-paced curriculum, do you consider having a private feed of your lessons so that people can actually listen to your course on the go because they know you as a podcast host and would probably love that kind of content, that ease, that accessibility, listen on their commute while they're out driving. So I think that podcast hosts have a lot of real advantages and Circle is certainly an interesting tool that I hope a lot more hosts will look into. Thank you, Melissa, for coming on the show. A lot of really great info there. Check out her website, wit, that's W-I-T, witandwire.com. She's got courses over there. She's got a podcast launch accelerator as well as courses on podcast editing, how to get booked, how to monetize. It's all there, witandwire.com. Some of the things that really jumped out when I listened to that episode back is number one, see if you can get one person 
to buy maybe like a Zoom call because otherwise you're going to spend months creating a course that nobody's going to buy. She mentioned that video stops a lot of people. I know me revamping the school of podcasting and moving it, I kept putting it off and putting it off thinking I have to wait till I lose all this weight. Well, in that case, it would happen sometime around 2027, 2030, something like that. And I love the fact I've told other uh, kind of people that do courses this great tip, and that is so many people think, especially if you have not so much a course, but a membership where people expect you to have some sort of community and people keep adding more and more and more courses or they'll elaborate on those. I'm actually moving the school of podcasting from Thinkific to Teachable. And in the process, I'm actually shortening the videos. And that's kind of one of the things she said is it's not a matter of getting them from A to B. Once you get them from A to B, how can you then get them from A to B faster? They don't really want more videos to watch. They want faster results. So again, check her out. Go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash wit and wire. And of course, I'll have links out at schoolofpodcasting.com slash 791. This is your friendly boost reminder. It's time to boost. 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 And you can find apps that allow you to boost at newpodcastapps.com. If you're not using one of those, check out schoolofpodcasting.com slash value. The question of the month is coming up that deadline. September 24th is when I need your entry. Go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash question. What is the question of the month? Well, we've learned that 70% of people find podcasts from somebody else telling them about that. So my question is, and this doesn't have to be a podcast. It could be an artist, a book, whatever it is. What was the last thing you shared with somebody like, Hey, you need to check this out. And why go to school podcasting.com slash question by September 24th, 2021. And don't forget to tell us a little bit about your podcast and where we can find it. Glenn the Geek is taking a much-needed, much-deserved week off. He's been out on the road for five weeks meeting his listeners and sponsors, and we've got one more report, but that will be coming in next week. If you'd like to start a podcast, I would love to help you. The School of Podcasting is where I help you plan, launch, grow, and if you want to, monetize your podcast. Again, go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash start. Use the coupon code LISTENER, and that's the only place you're going to find that coupon is right here in the podcast. It's not in the show notes. It's my way of saying thank you for being a listener. Coming up in the future, what happens if you get hit by a bus to your podcast? I'm going to be talking with Gordon Firemark about that. I'm still working on an episode about understanding the different features of podcast media hosts and a bunch of people went out to schoolofpodcasting.com slash just curious and gave me some ideas for future episodes. So if you'd like to do that, schoolofpodcasting.com slash just curious. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, take care. God bless. Class is dismissed. Here comes about another hour and a half of bloopers. If you like what you One of 
one of the number one ways, one of the number one ways, is there more than one way? Hey, the number one way and the second number one way, what does that mean? Is it something that you see, you know, oh, this is definitely more successful? Because you, you brought up, well, you know what? I'm going to shut up and let you answer that question and then we'll continue <laughs> on. I, I think my computer's just demon possessed at this point. <laughs> it's not in the mood. It's like not a Monday. And she's also got a background in podcast management. Why? Can, it's not. Well, she does have podcast man, project management, project management, not. Po- oh, geez. 